February 7th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Jokubas Zuberkus, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Biology and Biochemistry at the University of Houston. His lab studies the imbalance of excitation and inhibition at the level of cells and networks um, that leads to epileptic seizures. He's working out how neuromodulators spatiotemporally sculpt network function and also working out some exciting genetic models for studying febrile seizure. I think that's probably not all you work on. But um, that's sort of what I got to and what we'll probably be talking about today. So if you want to bring up anything else, do please. Hi, Jakubas. Yes. So that uh, that is a correct description, mostly. <laughs> okay, good. Phew, because usually I don't get it right. Um, and around the room we've got, uh, as usual, Charlie Wilson Hello. and Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Um, so, uh, so Jakubas, your work is really fundamentally rooted in working, or it seems to me, uh, based on reading some of your um, papers and, and your website and hearing you talk today, that you're actually really interested in working out therapeutic agents for, for epileptics. So um, in my mind, epilepsy presents a particularly tough problem for in vitro studies um, in that it's a really broad set of symptoms of unknown origin. And um, we don't know how seizures are generated spontaneously in vivo. So we generate seizure in vitro with things like tetanic stimulation or with drugs and then study how network dynamics play out. Um, so granted, some of those studies are actually more interested in things like network dynamics and not necessarily in, in therapeutic agents. But um, as an experimenter who cares about therapies and in understanding the clinical syndrome, how do you build a model system that's actually relevant to the clinical syndrome? So I would say that you, first of all, have to be careful about selecting a model system that would have certain representation in vivo. And there are two ways you can look at it. You can select a model, let's say a genetic model is better than a chemical model, um, a genetic model that has the same genetic mutations in humans that are found in humans is, is better than just a sporadic mutation that you really don't know if it occurs in, in humans. Uh, uh, the other way you can look at it is uh, somewhat abstractly as you're not going to worry if what you see in a model in a dish is exactly what you see in vivo because you're looking for basic questions and answers to basic questions. And I think that what excites me in general is you have these isolated cells or cultured cells or you have the isolated slice preparations from different parts of the brain and you look into activity of one or two cells or a little microcircuit activity and you're using, let's say, a chemical model of epilepsy, such as 4-AP. And at some point, you start asking yourself a question. How realistic is what you see in this model in the dish? How realistic it is compared to what you see in real human in vivo? Do the seizures form the same way in the dish as they form in vivo? And after asking that question many times, what's fascinating is whenever you do these experiments in sort of a reduced manner, either in a slice or a cell, a year or a few years later, people discover similar basic functions in whole brains, in whole animal brains, and later in whole human brains. So uh, I guess in, 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 in vitro model is reduced... Uh, representation of what's going on in vivo. But there are things that you can do in vitro that you cannot do in vivo. 
and you can test drugs and you can test changes on cell excitability and network excitability that you cannot test in vivo. Um, because in vitro, a lot of times, you can take advantage of patching a single cell or multiple cells or isolating a network or a circuit away from the surrounding circuit. So I guess it's a bit of a roundabout answer to your question, but I like to think of in vitro models not necessarily as something that replicates exactly what's going on in vivo, but shows a phenomenon, shows a certain activity basic function, and often you will find that activity and basic function in, in vivo as well. So it seems like in, in vivo you have a hard time asking about, it's a, it's a little bit of a question of what you mean by how they get started. You just have such a different level of a, a, asking that question, say in vitro, if you do, uh, say record from intracellularly from two or three neurons and uh, while some event is happening, you can look about what's happening first and how much and stuff like that. And in vivo, it seems like you're, you can you can describe the event uh, of that it's happening and some things about what you know where and how it's spreading, but it's a lot harder to ask questions of how in in detail uh, that things are happening. Um, and in so in, in vivo, so if you so you don't even know kind of what to look for about the how you don't know what events are critical if, unless you have more detailed. Uh, kind of hypotheses to go at, and so even if they're the wrong ones, in that you get in wrong story in vitro, you can go look at those. You know what are the critical things that happen, uh, and you're much you know much more precise thing guide for what to look at. I think it's a, also a test of time, right? Every in vitro model can seem to be great, and with time it can become not so great. And an in vitro model that nobody really wants to use at the moment, all of a sudden actually has a lot of features that are being replicated in, in the whole brain, and it becomes a popular model again. And there are also trends in how people choose models. And uh, I have to say that some of those trends get also potentially trended by the funding agencies too. And so if some study section or some funding agency is interested in that particular aspect of the disorder, they will say, well, this is a better model really to study that disorder rather than this, whether it's in vitro or in vivo. So the, the, the trending is, uh, is important because the trend somewhat shows you what people appreciate and what people value. But at the same time, it may not be the best thing. Um, because the trends are usually created by a couple of individuals. Um, and um, So can we, can we talk about your model? Sure. So, so your work is structured around the, the interplay of, of um, excitation and inhibition within cell types of a recurrent network. Mm -hmm. um, so seizure syndromes you describe as resulting from an imbalance of these. A lot of people describe it that way. So can you talk about what that means functionally um, in terms of what's perturbed and do you find either inhibition or excitation is the culprit, leads in this in, in seizure-like activity as you model it. So you mentioned 4AP is what you use. So can you talk a little bit about some of that work? So we've done quite a bit of work in 4-aminopyridine, which is a chemical model of seizure. 
and perhaps the more interesting things that we found in this forming of pyridine model is the interplay between the excitatory and inhibitory cells, temporally and spatiotemporally structured interplay that leads to seizures. Another surprising thing that we found is that the interneurons are really a lot more excited before the seizure than you would expect because excited interneurons would mean increased inhibition. And why would you have increase in inhibition before the seizure? So, um, so, can I stop? so where's the excitation for the these uh, inhibitory interneurons come from? So is there some subset of excitatory <laughs> neurons? Uh, that a specific mm, small population excite the inhibitory neurons and they get going? Or like, where does that come from? Potentially this could be happening, but there are probably other aspects of the inhibitory cells that make them more excitable than the excitatory cells. And especially when we look at some chemical seizure models like 4-AP or increasing potassium on the outside of the cell in the extracellular solution, while you have a pretty clear shift in the potassium concentration, which is going to cause a depolarization. The interneurons are already usually more depolarized than the pyramidal cell, so their resting membrane potential is somewhat closer, it actually is closer to the threshold potential for action potential generation. And this could be not necessarily the excitatory drive through the synapses, but some changes in either metabolic or ionic milieu surrounding the, the cells, and the more sensitive cells would then be the inhibitor interneurons to start reacting to these changes early on. And the other thing that we're learning is that if uh, seizures are indeed a representation of synchronized excitatory cell activity, at least locally, then maybe this inhibitor interneuron network, which is very strongly coupled with the excitatory network, causes the synchronization in the excitatory cells. So I'm interested in the 4-AP itself. 4-AP blocks potassium channels, so it could be blocking potassium channels on the inhibitory neurons, on the excitatory neurons, but usually when I have worked with 4-AP, the first thing you see is this massive storm of spontaneous synaptic potentials that I think is coming from ectopic spikes and cut axons. So where is the 4-AP working in this model to start the seizure? So it blocks the A-type channels, which are thought to be mostly expressed in the dendrites. Um, you don't see a, like a, a massive storm of synaptic potentials Actually, in, when we apply for AP, most of the time you actually get quiescence and kind of a hyperpolarization. Right. Then you get gradual depolarization in all cell subtypes with excitatory and inhibitory, and then increase. So, what does the 4-AP use for this? Pardon me. What's the concentration being used for this? Fifty micromolar, and it's also at different concentrations that will block different conductances. <coughs> So at 50 micromolar, I believe it blocks KD. It's a D current potassium. KD1. Yeah, and also the A-type potassium current. And you are correct. It will increase the action potential duration in both subtypes of cells. This is a very interesting idea that you propose, though, that it's coming from the cut axons. So I guess then one would have to use the cut axon preparation, the one that potentially... Uh, Shu is using right now in recording from single axons.
to see if this would be the side of uh, of the early activity coming from the cut axons. That's that's a very interesting question. Um, but uh, using so simultaneously when we do electrophysiology, we also use the imaging techniques, and so those imaging techniques can be very telling also. And we cut slices and. We cut slices, and there's slight variability in the angle by which you cut slices, maybe. But you would always see the focal point or where these epileptic activity is generated in 4AP in about the same region. Uh-huh. And where is that? And that is in border of CA3 and Dante gyrus. But you would not see them where you would expect to have the pyramidal cell axons. So you're seeing more where the pyramidal cell bodies and the dendrites are, more of the activity rather than axonal activity. Um, if, if it was due to the cut axons, then we would expect it in the hippocampus to see it always in the orients layer, for example, in the CA regions, because that's where majority of the well-defined axons from the pyramidal cells would be innervating. Um, of course, there's the mossy fibers. Yeah. That is true. So, um, do you know how many axons get cut? Or how many no, axons? No, I don't. Do yeah, you? I don't know either. So, I work with other parts of the brain where practically all the axons are cut because it doesn't have some kind of nice, neat arrangement of axonal mm-hmm. pathways. The interesting yeah. thing that you bring up then that there is a more organized structure for the pyramidal cell axons and because of the great diversity of the inhibitory cells. Uh, and their projections within the local network and pretty pretty uh, broad projections too. Um, you could be cutting more of the inhibitory cell axons that way. If you're cutting in, in one in a certain plane through the slice and you know where the pyramidal cell axons go, well maybe you can preserve a lot of them. But because of the diversity of the inhibitory cells and their geometrical projections, you could be severing more of the inhibitory cell axons and then maybe the inhibitory cells get excited earlier on because more of their axons are cut. Uh, it's a very interesting question, though. Um, anyway, but it's off topic a little bit. <laughs> but, but why, you know, when people make a model, I remember the penicillin model mm-hmm. was popular. When people make a model of epilepsy, they often, not, it's not like, uh, they designed, molecularly designed it, and they knew exactly how their drug was going to work. They sort of stumbled onto it. They tried something and it worked. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there's not that much interest in exactly how this drug makes a seizure because they know that isn't the, you know, the accurate, clinically accurate part of it. And right. it's how the seizure propagates, and, and so they don't worry about how right. the thing works. And it doesn't seem like there's. Co- in, in general consensus about what seizures is. Is there one monolithic seizure, right? Well, some so, people will say if the train went by, it went by, and you know that it's a train. <laughs> so you know that it's a seizure. And other people will argue that and say, well, no, there is a lot of brain activity that could be perceived as seizure, and the person is not really having a seizure. And there's at least two different kinds of seizures with different brain activity associated. There's many different kinds of seizures, and epilepsy is no longer actually referred to as epilepsies, epilepsies. And there are many different ways how you can get to this uh, signatures of epileptic activity. There's 4-aminopyridine, 0-magnesium, high potassium. 
So, so what are I the like, signatures? I mean, maybe that's what you were asking. What are the signatures? Go. What are the signatures? So the signatures <laughs> still, we have to replicate what is going on, what we know is going on in vivo. What we know is going on in vivo through many decades is the recordings, EEG recordings, from the surface of the of the neocortex, really, on the other side of the scalp. So all of the information gets filtered through this thick skull of ours and gets picked up by the electrodes. So this is what we know, and what we know is that there is typical activity in the regions that generate seizures. And that typical activity usually has two flavors. One is the shorter duration enterectal bursts or enterectal spiking activity. And this persistent enterectal spiking activity in a given part of the brain usually indicates a focus, a focus of at least abnormal activity. Then, of course, there is another feature of uh, uh, epileptic activity, and those are longer duration seizures. So enterectal spikes or enterectal bursts will last in the order of a few hundred milliseconds up to maybe two seconds. The seizure events that cause prolonged depolarizations in the circuits either locally or spread more generally will be on the order of uh, minutes to several minutes to, of course, status epilepticus, which can last for hours and, and be deadly too. So in the EEG, it looks like sort of a high-frequency sinusoidal <coughs> thing that slows down over time and then... And repeats itself repeats again. Itself. Right. And so if we're looking at the neurons, say, in, the, in, a, in a modeled seizure in the hippocampus, what are the, what are the neurons do, doing during those oscillations? So that's actually exactly what we're interested in. Uh, so you can do extracellular recordings, which would be network recordings, and that still doesn't tell you anything about the activity of individual cells, and you have to then patch specific cellular subtypes, the excitator and inhibitor cell subtypes. And uh, again, traditionally seizures were looked upon as monolithic hypersynchronous events that cause hypersynchrony Network, we're so all we sort of assumed that every neuron was firing on each of those oscillations. Right. And they're all firing together, and that's what was making the oscillation. Right. But it, it, but uh, later what we found out from the work of uh, Bujaki and others is that these brain rhythms, these oscillations, have very specific players in them, very specific subtypes of cells that contribute their action potentials during different parts of this rhythm. So what we think is going on in... Uh, in the seizure conditions or in epileptiform conditions is the balance is upset between excitation and inhibition, but the inhibitor cells could be initiating the process. They could be initiating the process by becoming more active, by synchronizing the excitatory cells because they do have strong projections in the excitatory cells. And then excitation in the excitatory cells would then further drive the excitatory cells to synchronize but the interactions are going to be very specific based on the specific cellular subtypes, and not all of the cells will be firing at the same time. So what time scale are you talking about in terms of synchrony? So this has kind of screwed up a lot of studies of what synchronizes things and what doesn't. So if you have a whole bunch of cells that go off together, they're synchronous, right? Except for if you're talking about a lot of the models of spike synchrony and what it's good for, kind of spike-to-spike -spike synchrony, and if they're all going off together, they can't help each other synchronize on that level because there's some delay from a spike to the next, and if everybody's going off exact synchrony, it doesn't help. 
So we have a question about whether you're talking about these bursts, this synchronous activity in a burst of 100 milliseconds. They're all going off at 100 milliseconds. Do you remember when Tay was here? We had this discussion about the definition of synchrony. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like half an hour of this in, in another podcast. Yeah, so I just, yeah, so it's just so we'll continue the thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's a question of what because. <laughs> Tay knows it much better, by the way, so yeah. maybe we should just call him again. <laughs> um, but so when you're talking about synchronized cells and whether that's, you know, if you synchronize the, the, um, the excitatory cells, you're saying, the question is whether you're, you're saying that you're just making a lot of them active. <laughs> so the oscillations are pretty fast. They're not like one hertz oscillations. So if, if there's a one hertz oscillation and cells are firing within 100 milliseconds of each other, you kind of think of them as in phase on oscillation. But in this case, the oscillations in the EEG that people are looking at are like on the order of what frequency? Well, it depends, but there are dominant frequencies during seizures and they can be different depending on the type of seizure that you're looking at. There could be a slow wave activity that is uh, just a few hertz a second. There can be also very fast spiking activity in the upper gamma range, 40 to 80 hertz, let's say, and also in the fast ripple range, 200 to 600 hertz. See, so that's, you know, if you go with the, the 200 to 600, then you are talking about arranging spikes right. together and so forth. Right. And if you're talking about one or two, then you're talking about a whole bunch of cells going off together. I guess the way I think about this is that, look, you have to look at the relevant events that you're studying. So if you're studying action potentials that are on the order of two to three milliseconds in length, you should probably use bins less than one millisecond in length to see if those action potentials are synchronized let's say, between two cells. If you're looking at the subthreshold events or postsynaptic potentials that last 20 milliseconds to 40 milliseconds or 100, I think you have to use a different temporal scale to, to address that. So then I guess what you can think of is that there are different levels of synchrony and different uh, temporal intervals, and each one of these will relate to a specific function of the neuron, whether it's a spike, whether it's an EPSP, or a very prolonged depolarization that lasts 30 seconds, at which point you would probably want to use bins of one second duration in, in comparing the synchronization between the cells. Um, what do you think about this coexistence of different levels of synchrony within different temporal domains? Well, so, uh, yeah, yeah, it depends, I think, a lot of the specifics. I, I, don't, I guess I don't want to, I'd rather, I'd rather talk about this question about synchrony, or whether, the, I guess my question comes from whether synchrony is the right uh, word to start to use, mm -hmm. uh, or you say that, you know, so a bunch of stuff happens all at once, right? That's a, in some ways, that's an epileptic event. There's a lot of stuff happens all at once. And then, but when, some of what you're saying is that when you actually look at it in detail, it's not all at once. You know, some guys are first, some guys are second, and maybe they're not all, the excitatory cells and the inhibitory cells are not all aligned the same way, and maybe you have now some dynamic of this triggering that, it's following that mm -hmm. with some dynamics. And now you have to part, start to pull apart the different dynamic components in their temporal relationship and their phase relationship and the time scales of, of what's happening. And then the question then becomes, is synchrony a blanket 
is is synchrony the the most important word to use in that way, or is it? Are you hiding under something? Maybe it's the most important word for the lack of the better word. Yeah. Well, I think so. It's also interesting in the sense of the balance of excitation and inhibition is some ways the same way, right? So if things are getting really active, we think there's more excitation uh, and there's less inhibition, but. That's in some ways just making a rephrasing of there's a lot of activity, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. then when you start to pull apart except balances of excitation and inhibition, do you're talking about you know withdrawal of inhibition at the right time is that excitation? What's the difference? And what, what time scale do they build up? Uh, and again, this notion of, of balance of excitation and inhibition starts to kind of fall apart uh, and now becomes the excuse for glomming everything together. Well, I think historically, people looking at an oscillation like that, like the oscillation that happens during a seizure, said, well, opposed it in a slightly simpler way. Um, is, is during one phase of it, is when, that, when the excitatory cells fire, and then during the, net, during the you know, counter phase of that, is that when the inhibitory cells fire? This is a sort of reasonable thought. Maybe they are alternating, and that's why you get this oscillation. And so if you find out they're not uh, alternating, <coughs> but, but they're firing on a roughly the same phase, at least the same quadrant of the oscillation, mm -hmm. then you, could, you think of that as a finding. And so how do you characterize that? What's the right word to say? They're, they're not firing in counterphase, they're firing together with each other. So together, synchronous is kind of, synchronous may be a little bit hyperbole, uh, mm -hmm. For that phenomenon, where they're kind of in the firing in the same phase. So my understanding is, partly from you, is that they're firing in the same phase. They're not alternating excitation and inhibition during that oscillation. Is that right? No, actually, I, that's exactly what what I think is that they are alternating. Ah, yeah. So we get a little uh, bunch of excitatory neurons fire, bunch of inhibitory neurons right. fire, and that's what's making the oscillation. Right, except that now you have 21 subtypes of inhibitory neurons, and so it's not going to be that they all fire at the same time. It's going to be that a specific subtype of interneurons will fire at the same time. And they're firing at specific phases on the oscillation. Right, right. The excitatory neurons also break into some subtypes. Do they fire at different phases on the on the other? It's also a very interesting question that hasn't really been addressed because it's very recent that people are trying to distinguish the pyramidal cell from another pyramidal cell based on some intracellular marker. So, so far it's all been grouped together into an excitatory cell, especially if it's in the cortex or hippocampus. It's, excitatory pyramidal cell. So in a way we wouldn't know whether the, the excitatory cells are really synchronous or not because we see some spread of preferred phase on the oscillation and we don't know whether that's subtype specific or whether that's actually just splay. Right, right, uh, right. So one, one of the things that's really interesting that you've run into in this balance of excitation and inhibition thing is, is whether you, if you excite the inhibitory cells too much, you can shut them off, right? Which gives a kind of a U-shaped thing. So if you want more inhibition, you can't just excite the inhibitory cells more. Because if you shut them too much, excite them too much, they go into depolarization block and you shut and them off. That actually causes the runaway excitation. Right, so right. if you, so you can't just like have more, so if you want to juice up, if you want to stop the, 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 the amount of activity by juicing up inhibition, if you juice up inhibitory cells, you may just shut them off. 
right. which makes things worse. Right, and and that's one of the things that I think is a challenge, especially for epileptic therapies, is that most of them target the inhibitory pathway by trying to boost up the inhibitory pathway. So. And the alternative would be is to try to turn down the excitation. Right. Um, so you can do it whether the excitation or the sensitivity of to either one of the you know synaptic ways. I mean, maybe you make the inhibitory cells less excitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Or give them bigger spike after hyperpolarizations. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, for AP, it might, it's harmful to spike after hyperpolarizations. Maybe if you could uh, give them the opposite of that, something that would cause them to repolarize nicely after each spike, they would be able to keep up firing during these high frequency periods. It's, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is where I, I was going to bring up neuromodulators. Um, so you're looking at what they do in these situations to network function to individual um, properties, intrinsic cell dynamics and how they alter them. Can you talk about some of that work? Sure. Like, so most of the time when we talk about excitation inhibition, we talk about glutamate for excitation and excitatory cells and GABA for inhibition in the inhibitory cells. But apart from these two major neurotransmitters that essentially dictate the every moment uh, behavior of neurons and neural circuits, we also have these neuromodulatory inputs that come in from the brainstem nuclei, from subcortical locations, some in the cortex. And this system is different, uh, unlike uh, the specific excitatory inhibitor synapses with their glutamate and AMPA. Uh, and MDA kinase receptors or GABA receptors for inhibition, you have these projections that will seem to work like sprinklers, and they non-specifically sprinkle all of these neuromodulators that are subcortical onto the network. So in the case of norepinephrine, which is produced in the brainstem nucleus of locus ceruleus, and you have the projections everywhere in the cortex and the hippocampus. And the receptors are studying both the excitatory and inhibitory cells. They're located in both subtypes of cells. So it's very important, I think, to not limit ourselves thinking about GABA and glutamate as the main reason for the excitation inhibition and the main players that dictate that balance. Because these neuromodulatory substances, a lot of times they act through the G-protein coupled receptors and their activity can be long-lasting. So as opposed to just causing an excitatory postsynaptic potential, inhibitory postsynaptic potential, they can actually activate intracellular signaling cascades and change something about the cell properties, sometimes even the transcription um, abilities of the cell too. So one of the things that I'm very much interested in is how these neuromodulators affect the dynamics of excitation and inhibition. And so far we've looked mostly in for amino period in model, we looked at the beta-adrenergic modulators, and we found something very interesting there because um, you would think that if you want to block the seizure or reduce the, the, the seizure-like activity in a slice, that you would have to block excitation or reduce the excitatory drive. And in the presence of beta-adrenergic agonists in 4-AP, we actually see an increase in the activity, an increase in spiking activity. But that increase 
actually is desynchronizing. So more activity doesn't always mean that it is synchronized activity that will lead to seizures. And that's exactly what we observed in 4AP model with beta-adrenergic agonists is that it increases level of activity, but it desynchronizes the networks. It introduces more variability in the spiking and bursting activity of these networks. Uh, by in the so variability in this case we measured with the interval for the interictal bursts, and the interval would be pretty even in foraminopyridine, and then you would have a pretty clear peak for the latency or for the delay between these bursts, and that would get spread out a lot more in the presence of the neuromodulator, which means there's a lot more variability in spiking and bursting activity. So there's a reduction in synchrony. Increased activity, but reduction in synchrony. And the other thing that we have to start looking is how neuromodulators affect things like neural propagation of neural activity and synchrony. Whatever term we use uh, for synchrony today. (laughs) How do you imagine that happening? Is it just a question of shutting off a certain part of the, a certain type of inner neuron or flavor of inner neuron in the network, or is it something, you know, is there, what what kind of mechanisms do you imagine? So we we don't know, I guess, enough about the exact locations of the receptors for these neuromodulators in the excitatory inhibitory cells especially for specific subtypes of the cells. And it's very likely what's happening, it's been reported by actually uh, Peter Segal's group that beta-adrenergic agonists will increase the in inhibition, and it can also increase the after-hyperpolarizations mm-hmm. sometimes. Uh, and there's others that would report it would decrease after-hyperpolarizations too. <laughs> so... Um, What was your question? I don't want to forget to talk about febrile yeah. seizures because the, 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 you know, the 4AP seizures are another one of these things that, we're, that are not obviously exactly the same as real seizures, but seizures that happen when the brain gets warm, mm-hmm. that start to, to really... Uh, to come home because many parents have had children that had seizures that the right. just said, well, just kid had a fever and had a seizure, you know. Those are real seizures. And um, so if we, if the whole model is good, all the way back to the very first event, it becomes good and real model. So it seems exciting to me that you can, can you can do that. Can you start a, a seizure in a in any old hippocampal slice by making it too warm? So that's a very interesting question, and I will maybe relate it back talking about models is that uh, for aminopyridine is something exogenous. The heat is something endogenous, really, because we all go through the fluctuations. We all have fever at some point in our lives, and temperature doesn't discriminate. The blood goes through your body, and all of your body is going to have increased heat, including the brain. And we've done, in the past two and a half years, work in the Dravet syndrome model, which is a severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy, in which 
the onset of epilepsy begins with the febrile seizures. With fever in these children, they have a mutation in the gene that codes for voltage-gated sodium channels. The children and also in animals will be very susceptible to changes in temperature and they will have a seizure. So what I want to say about this is that we've been able to produce these seizures quite reliably in the hippocampal slices. You can produce them in the developing slices easier than in the adult slices, but so is the case in real humans. The children are the ones that are a lot more likely to have febrile seizures than adults. So that's true. The other thing that is true is in our work, what's fascinating is that with this mutation in the voltage-gated sodium channel, we very reliably can produce the hyperthermia or um, increased temperature-induced seizures. Uh, for me, that's really exciting because it is endogenous, and potentially this is a, a great model that can correlate nicely the function of the brain cells and networks in a dish to what is happening in real, uh, not in real situation, but in vivo in the whole animal. So does that sodium channel have a cell-specific distribution? Right. So that particular sodium channel, NAV 1.1, it is thought to be expressed specifically in the inhibitory parvalbumin cells, so feed-forward inhibitory cells. Um, it is thought that the mutation in the channel protein reduces the sodium currents. Reduction in the sodium currents reduces action potential firing in the inhibitory cells and therefore GABA release causing this imbalance of excitation and inhibition. Now... The cells would be more likely to go into depolarization block as well if they have a little less correct, channel availability. Correct. And the, 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 the thing that we're looking at now is we're looking at the excitatory inhibitory cell behavior and their activity firing properties in synchrony in hyperthermia. Um, well, I see. And uh, not necessarily in a seizure, but just moving the temperature up to watch what's happening. Both, so. both. We're looking at it as we're moving the temperature up. And so this is another interesting thing that I brought up in my talk a little bit is that the temperature itself is a modulator. And what's very interesting is that inhibition is more sensitive to increases in temperature than excitation. That means at some point when the body temperature goes up, we lose inhibition but we maintain excitation. That difference could be a couple of degrees, 38.5 to 40.5, but that's actually the temperature at which you would start seeing, you know, high-end fever, 41, 42 Celsius, um, and febrile seizures potentially too. So I always think of the temperatures just speeding everything up, but that the there's... Uh, uh, when we say we might lose inhibition, there's a couple of ways it could happen. One of them is inhibitory cells quit firing, the other is inhibitory synapses quit working. The, so yeah. there is a decrease in the GABA release. There's also an effect on GABA synthesis with temperature, uh -huh. and that seems to be more drastic than on the glutamate release or glutamate synthesis. Um, whether these channels, mutated sodium channels, are more sensitive to temperature, it is not exactly known. But in this model, because they are located in the inhibitory cells, if they were more sensitive to temperature, then you would expect the inhibitory cells to fire more, not less. Yeah. 
but instead they have reduced sodium currents and cannot produce action potentials. So just speeding everything up, isn't it? Like if I, I just always, I never really do the experiment, but I always imagine if I heated things up, spikes would get narrower, and everything would, every cell would speed up, and that's right. a sort of modeler's view of, mm -hmm. of temperature, and. Uh, Everything. Tastes cool. Yeah, everything triples for ten degrees or something like that. Yeah. But it's not like that, really. There are other uh, some enzymes quit working or something. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it seems yeah. like a really exciting. To me, that seems like a really exciting preparation because you have you have a, a continuous parameter that's pretty easy to modulate up and down in a slice, right? And and in certain circumstances, you can you could actually see whether the slice goes into some reasonable form of epileptic activity if you want to do that, but you don't have to. You could just look at temperature sensitivity in the right range. And then all specific manipulations you would want to do in the network to talk about various sites of intervention, you can just see whether it makes a big difference in terms of the temperature sensitivity of the performance of the cells. And if you want to start to pick apart things, mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. give a temperature sensitivity <laughs> curve and see how that shifts for lots of different things and make a you know, make some manipulation, a very specific ma manipulation with a lot of molecular tools and say, does that change the temperature sensitivity to go into depolarization block or whatever, right? right? right. I mean, you just have such a rich way of comparing a lot of different... It's so incredible for temperature to be the thing that... I mean, we're so used to thinking of delivering something with viruses and then flashing lasers at them and stuff like that. Temperature is just... You just turn up the little knob on the temperature thing. <laughs> but again, you know, it is limited how you can do it. And today, uh, there's only a couple of publications, and one of them is from Barry Connor's lab, who I know did a podcast here. Um, and they showed that they can generate pretty reliably these seizures in a normal uh, developing rat tissue. But that is one of the one or one of the two articles that are out there. In other cases, when the hyperthermia was studied, people would still stimulate. So we are also... Uh, we're not only lucky, the reason why we're using this in vitro model is because in Dravet syndrome, there's high susceptibility and high sensitivity to, to susceptibility to febrile seizures and sensitivity to temperature that evokes these febrile seizures at much lower temperatures. But I'm also very much excited about this model. I think it's a, it's a very good model that has, I think, uh, features both in vitro and in vivo. The other remarkable thing, I didn't show you the EEG and video EEG recordings that we've done in this animal, but if you were to take an extracellular recording from a febrile seizure you induced in a dish, and you took an EEG recording of the febrile seizure you induced in an animal, you actually would find a lot of similarities and little squiggles and oscillations in their frequencies. And for an untrained eye, you wouldn't be even able to tell whether this happened in vitro and in vivo. They'll have similar dynamics that lead up to the seizure. They have similar frequencies during the seizure. The seizure is about the same duration in vivo, one to two minutes, quiescence, repetition of the seizure. We would see the same in vitro too. So that's what's really fascinating is if you were really a, an untrained individual and you just made somebody guess 
is this different two th these two things different or they're about the same and compared it to something that was that you knew were different you would have a hard time telling that they're different <laughs> it's a great model that's a, must be satisfying to work on that instead finally of, yeah <laughs> so, that, that mouse so you have you have you actually published any studies on that mouse yet? no right now actually we have a paper in resubmission in epilepsy where we detail the in vitro work but we've advanced quite far we have another manuscript now in the in vivo work and the exciting thing in, in those studies is that the uh, denison a1 receptor agonist is extremely reliable at controlling these seizures and we also could then do the work in vitro and see how it controlled the seizures in vitro before we started doing injections in vivo. And in vivo, it has a really potent, acute effect, but it also may have a more prolonged effect following the chronic treatment of the animal with that agonist. So um, look out There's for more. Decades of of work in that that we'll actually I have a very very talented student Fangu and he's done a lot of work in this model tirelessly doing injections over a weekend he's really powered through this like a postdoc would in the past two and a half three years it took him eight months to get these mice to breed we imported them from Japan from uh, Kazuhiro Yamakawa's lab who generously gifted the mice to us they were in our animal care and took them eight months to breed. So although my student had a project and he knew what he was working on, he didn't have <laughs> the, the enough of the subjects yeah. for, for his studies until eight or ten months later, actually. That's really so. exciting stuff, though. We look forward to seeing it in press. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks for being with us. This has been a lot of fun. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.